Let's begin in prayer. Father, we come to you, and as we just sang, um, speak, speak, O oh Lord. Um, help us to hear your word this morning. These are your words. You, um, your spirit has um, put these words on paper for us to see, for us to read, for us to understand. And God, I pray that that would be uh, the reality this morning. I'm nothing but a vessel um, for the spirit to speak through. And I ask that that would be the case. I ask that all of our hearts would be transformed by the truth of what we um, are hearing today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, well, I kept getting asked this week, uh, what is it that you're going to uh, speak on? What's the, what's the passage? And I would respond, Leviticus. And uh, people would um, say, oh, yeah, well, which verses? And I would respond, Leviticus. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but what, what verses? I'm like, no, the whole book, like the, the entire book. We're going we're gonna to look at the entire book of Leviticus today. And they would kind of look at me with that look. It was like, are, are you sure? Um, you know, isn't that the book that everyone kind of gets stuck in on their journey to read the Bible through every year? They, they, it's the one where all, most, all hope gets lost and, um, and, they, and, they, and they quit the challenge. Um, acknowledged. Um, but Leviticus is a great book. Um, and, I, and, I, and while I love to dive deep into a passage of Scripture um, and to be able to study, the, to study a particular passage in depth, I've also found that um, staying at a high level, looking at the big picture, is just as important for us in our understanding of the story of the Bible. And that's helpful to us. The Leviticus itself is helpful. It's part of what is known as the Pentateuch, um, Penta 5, meaning the first five books of the Bible. So if you're looking for it in your Bible, it's the third one in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Um, and so that's uh, why would we do that? Well, these first five books of the Bible they lay a foundation uh, for what the rest of the Bible is going to tell us. And I had a professor recently tell me that you can't fully appreciate what's in the New Testament, what the New Covenant brings to us, until you understand what it replaced in the Old Covenant and what we find written down in the Old Testament. And so that's why we're going to study Leviticus today. Um, and I was telling Tim this, and he's like, I was like, hey, man, we're going to be here till 7 o'clock. It's a big book. And he's like, all right, I'm in. So hopefully that's everyone's attitude today. He had the, he had the perfect response to that. Now, I promise we won't be here that late. I promise. Um, but reading Leviticus is hard, acknowledged. Um, it seems to um, spell out in really tedious um, manner a bunch of rituals. Um, and we're left questioning as we read through it. What does this have to do with me? Reminds me of what um, Pastor John always says that Al he quotes Alistair Begg that all scripture is inspired, but not all scripture is as equally inspiring. And sometimes I think people can feel that way when they're reading through the book of Leviticus. But I hope to persuade you today that Leviticus is a great book and that by studying it, we can discover the joy of our salvation in Christ. And that I hope that you will see by the end of this sermon that. Um, we are the people of God, that we are living in the presence of God, just as the Israelites were, um, and that we are being created into a holy people that are fit for God to dwell among them. And that's ultimately the theme of Leviticus, and that is that, we are, that there is holy living in a covenant community that is fit for God's dwelling. Again, holy living in a covenant community that is fit for God's dwelling. 
Now, all the way back in Genesis, just to lay a little bit of foundation for the book of Leviticus, um, all the way back in Genesis, at the beginning, we find that God creates the world, and that all gets marred by the sin of mankind. Everything gets thrown off the rails, per se. And as the book of Genesis goes on, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he tells him that all nations are going to be blessed through his offspring, that he's going to become a great nation, that kings are going to come from his offspring, and that all of his offspring are going to, 400 years into the future, are going to um, inhabit the land that he was currently in the process of sojourning in. And this all comes to fruition then in the book of Exodus. Um, by, and by the end of Exodus, God has established yet another covenant with, um, on, on Mount Sinai with the offspring of Abraham, the Jewish people. And he has established a covenant with them that they will be God's people. Um, that they are going to serve God alone and no other, and that God is going to faithfully give them that land. And then a detailed description is given to us in Exodus about this tabernacle that was supposed to be built. And then right after you get done reading about that detailed description of how this tabernacle is to be built, it gives an almost identical detailed description of how they built the tabernacle right according to all of those instructions. And at the end of the book of Exodus, we see that the glory of God descends upon this tabernacle. And the glory of God rests in, the, in that tabernacle. And we now see God dwelling with his people that he chose, that he redeemed, and that he provided for. But living in the presence of this holy God also required that they be a holy people. And God warns them, if you just live as you please, if you just go off and do as you do, if you don't follow my commandments, then I will abandon you and you'll be scattered amongst the nations. And that brings us then to the three points that we'll discover today in the book of Leviticus. For God to dwell in the presence of his people, number one, unclean people need to be cleansed. Unclean people need to be cleansed. Number two, atonement must be made for sin. Atonement must be made for sin. And number three, holiness is required of his people. Holiness is required of his people. Now, each morning when I wake up, um, I get out of bed. I feel my body replay the Rice Krispies theme song. Um, I head off to take a shower. I get out. I groom my beard. I brush my hair. I brush my teeth. I take my medicine, gargle some mouthwash, put in my contacts. I go get dressed. I always put my right sock on before I put my left sock on. Doing anything different would just throw my whole day off. I don't, I don't know how people can't, can't, can't have, a, have a ritual, have a routine. Um, I grab some coffee that my wonderful daughter always makes for me. I head off 20 feet off to the um, east side of my house into my office and go to work. And it seems like almost every day these days I get to argue with a coworker that doesn't necessarily appreciate what collaboration looks like. Um, I get to spin up the metaphorical hamster wheel of a bunch of computers that runs my company. Um, I get to share throughout the day, uh, mentor younger coworkers and be able to help them understand how to do the job that I've done for 27 years. At 5 o'clock, I might um, head off to a discipleship meeting with another man, or I might go for a walk for a, an hour to try to keep my body in shape, um, keep, uh, relieve some stress. That's, what I, that's why I like to walk. Um, come home, I eat dinner, 
spend some time with my family. Um, and then after they start to head off to bed around 8, 9 o'clock, I'm still up for a good three or four hours. Um, I do some studying for school, or um, I might study the Bible, um, this, that, or the other. About midnight, I go up to bed, drop in it, exhausted. Wake up the next day and do it all over again. And um, outside of that, throw in a little bit of home, ma home maintenance on the HMS Aaron H.C. Long. Um, and uh, we keep it operating in good ship, good ship shape. Um, that, that's my life. Right? That, that's what I do. Um, if, you, if you thought I lived a real exciting life, I, I hate to break the, uh, burst the bubble for you, but it's pretty mundane. I, that's, I, every, it seems to be a ritual that is marked at the end of every week when I take the last of the pills out of a little pillbox and I refill it for the next week. I think to myself, yet another week gone, yet another week to come. But, you know, this, this might seem like a mundane life, but when I look at it, each aspect of this ritual that I do every day, every week, reminds me of who I am. See, when I get out of bed and I feel this snap, crackle, pop, and the groans of my body, it reminds me that I'm still alive, as older people always tell me. Um, and it reminds me that I have yet another day to serve others. And I glory in that. It, when I put my socks on, my hips like to remind me of the surgeries that I had many years ago. Arguing, arguing with my coworker is certainly no fun, but I'm convinced that people do their best work when you empower them to use their skills, when you enable them to participate in the work and to be able to do things their way. That is when they do their best. That's when they're best. I don't want them to be demanded to do things. I don't want them micromanaged, and I'm a leader in my company. And so I advocate for that culture, and that's why I do that. I have great passion to use technology to help businesses do the things that they need to do. I've been doing it for 27 years. I love that. I love to teach other people. I love to see people mature and grow in their professional lives. I love to see people grow and mature in their spiritual life. Um, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I am a child of God who has the privilege of being able to learn about what God has written in his word. And I have the privilege to be able to share that with others. So while it might seem mundane and tedious in my life, I actually can find great joy knowing that I'm accomplishing over months and years a purpose that glorifies God in all that I do. And so in a similar way, we see a very tedious description given in the book of Leviticus. A tedious description that describes the life of the Israelite nation. See, in these first 10 chapters, we have all these regulations on how sacrifices and offerings are going to be made in this tabernacle that we just talked about. These rituals and offerings are tediously described. The animals had to be a male without blemish. The priest was to cut it into small pieces, arrange, it on, arrange those pieces on the altar. Don't wash the meat, but wash the entrails. If it was a bird that was brought, wring its neck off or wring its head off and burn the head, but pour the blood on the side of the altar. Tear open the bird, but don't tear it open all the way. Grain offerings were an option, but you couldn't put yeast or honey on it. Salt was supposed to be added to these offerings. What's going on here? Like 10 whole chapters just going through these details. And I think we can get some key insight when we dive in a bit. So chapter 1, Leviticus chapter 1. Oh, I thought I had my ribbon there already. Um, 
John doesn't tell us what pages these are on in the, in the Pew Bible anymore. I think it's 80, 80 or 81. Chapter 1, Leviticus, we get some insight into this right off the bat. In verse 3, it says of this burnt offering that it's describing that this is done for acceptance on his behalf for the Lord. In verse 7, or sorry, verse 4, it says, and it shall be accepted to him to make atonement for him. And in verse 9, it says, a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. See, what we find in these opening pages of Leviticus is that God is teaching his people that if he is going to dwell among them, the problem of their sin and rebellion needs to have a solution. Their sin, a blood offering, is going to be required to cleanse them from their sin. This offering itself is not going to remove their sin. It doesn't remove their sin, but it is a sign of faith in the Lord that he will atone for their sins. The offerer would actually lay his hands on this animal, this live animal that was going to be the sacrifice, and it would symbolize that his sins were being placed on that animal, and then the offerer would receive the benefit of atonement, which was being mediated by this consecrated priest. And this faith pleased the Lord. See, God's people had a sin problem, and it required a divine solution that was capable of reconciling man with God. And these sacrifices were put in place to facilitate the relationship that an Israel had with God. Sorry, that an Israelite had with God. And we see that we see that these burnt offerings that we've been talking about, we see that they were living sacrifices, that they expiated, they provided atonement, they removed the sin of the offerer. It talks about these grain offerings that were gifts to the Lord. There were well-being offerings, thanksgiving offerings, vow offerings, voluntary offerings. There were purification offerings for sin, and these highlighted the needed for one's life to be ransomed, and that was displayed by the priest who would take and eat the offering and how he was bearing that person's sin as he was mediating this. There were reparation offerings that acknowledged that sin created a debt that had to be repaid. And so, just like my tedious daily ritual reminds me of who I am, these rituals, these sacrifices, these offerings, they reminded God's people of their sin and moral failures. And it brought them before the Lord and into the sanctuary to provide forgiveness and cleansing of their sin. In chapters 11 through 15 of Leviticus, we see more rituals that dealt with this idea of what it means to be clean and what it meant to be unclean. Now see, in order to participate in the religious life of the nation, an Israelite had to be clean. And there was a series of things that could happen throughout the course of daily life that would cause them to be unclean, and then they are given a description, a detailed description of what they were to do in order to become clean again so that they could participate in the religious life of the nation. And so they're given instructions on certain animals that they're allowed to eat, animals that were clean, and they were said, you can eat those animals, but you can't eat these animals that are unclean. And what we find as a pattern is that the animals that are unclean have abnormalities of some kind, but mostly what we see is that those animals have some type of contact with death. And so, for example, they're not allowed to eat vultures or eagles. These are birds that feed on the carcasses of dead animals. They weren't allowed to eat flying insects. Winged in insects were all off limits, except grasshoppers, crickets, and locusts, because those fed on grains. 
And so we see this pattern, and it, and it shows us that touching dead, and oh, by the way, touching dead things also made them unclean, and, and this pattern of death, and by marking things that have contact with death as unclean, would actually remind these Israelites regularly of the penalty of sin, and that sin brought death. Childbirth was another cause for uncleanness. And that ties us all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the curse of sin described for the woman how she was going to experience pain in bringing forth, child, or bringing forth children. For two whole chapters, we have a description of how leprosy causes somebody to be unclean and a long description of how do you figure out if it's leprosy or if it's not leprosy, if and it is leprosy, what you have to do and the amount of time that it takes for the, you to be considered clean of that leprosy and how to then go get purified so that you could be considered clean again. The disease of leprosy was hidden, persistent, and above all, it was indistinguishable from other skin diseases. And so that reflects the nature of human sin, which is hidden, persistent, and indistinguishable to our wicked hearts, where bodily discharges from both men and women that were related to their sexual organs, and these reminded Israelites of their nakedness before the Lord, just as Adam and Eve saw that they were naked and ashamed before the Lord. So these rituals, they're not related to hygiene. I don't see that. They're not hygiene-related rit rituals that would keep them healthy. What they are are daily ritual reminders that help them see, just like my daily ritual reminds me of who I am, it helped these Israelites see their sin and remind them of the need that they had to rely on God to cleanse them from their sin so that they would be holy and able to dwell among him as their people. And so in the same way, we are sinful people. We have a sin problem that requires a divine solution. Leviticus reminds us, as God's people ourselves, of our own struggle with sin. Leviticus reminds us of the demand for righteous, holy living amongst us and our inability to meet that expectation, which drives us to look for a divine solution. And that leads us to the next point, and that is that atonement must be made for sin. Atonement must be made for sin. Now, chapter 16 of Leviticus lays out an annual ritual that was known as the Day of Atonement. Throughout the year, Israelite sin was removed from them personally through these offerings at the tabernacle that we were just looking at. These sacrifices removed sin from the offerer and put it on the altar that was before the Lord. And the Day of Atonement was about cleansing the tabernacle of the sin and the guilt of the people of the nation of Israel, and it was done in this ceremony. And this ceremony pictures the removal of that sin from the camp and expelling it far from the presence of God. This is something akin to a divine sneeze. Um, hang with me here. Um, anyone that deals with allergies understands what it means to expel an allergy. Um, you sneeze, spraying thousands of germs over 100 miles an hour out into the many, many feet beyond you. And I know that's gross, but what is happening here? The allergen is a foreign body that your body cannot be around. It must be removed far from you. Now, see, I have a love-hate relationship with trees. Um, I love them when they're dead, 
because I like to take large pieces of wood, make them into smaller pieces of wood, glue them together, and hope something functional comes out of all of that. But when they're alive, every spring, they drop all this pollen in the air, and I'm heavily allergic to tree pollen. And every spring, I'm nothing but a sneezing, coughing, teary-eyed hot mess when the tree pollen is out there. I hate it. I want nothing to do with it. And I need to stay as far away from tree pollen as I can. And cats and dust mites as well. And those, are my, those are my kryptonite. Um, everyone understands that. Now, in the same way, God hates sin. His holiness is such that he cannot be around it. And it must be dealt with. It must be removed from his presence if he is going to be able to dwell amongst us. This day of atonement ritual removed the nation of Israel's sin. It cleansed them. It cleansed them. It was this expiation, this atonement of the nation's sins that enabled God's holy presence to remain among its people. Now, this atonement was done by a blood sacrifice. Blood was always the key to how sins were purified. Now, as we continue this morning, we're going to start using the book of Hebrews to help us interpret Leviticus. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so, on this day, that is described in Leviticus 16, on this day alone, <clears throat> what would the high priest do? He would begin by first going into the Holy of Holies. He would take some coals off of the, off, off of the altar and he would go into the Holy of Holies, the internal part of his tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the glory of the Lord was there resting between the wings of two angels that were on top of the Ark. And the priest would light an incense fire. And the smoke would cover the glory of the Lord. And it says in Leviticus 16 that this was done so that he does not die. Now this needs a little bit of an explanation. See, this day of atonement ritual is commanded by God after Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, go in and offer unauthorized fire to the Lord. And the glory of the Lord consumes them. You see, what we're, what we're starting to see developed here is a depiction that sinful man cannot enter the presence of a holy God. We cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Our sin is too great, it requires a solution. And so God was providing that for this high priest through this incense fire that would have this smoke. <clears throat> now after this incense fire was lit, the high priest would then atone for his own sins and the sins for the priesthood. He would go and he would sacrifice a bull. Um, he would then take the blood from that bull and he would go back into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant seven times. Then he would go back out and he would rub the blood of that bull on the altar. And that symbolized cleansing of the sanctuary. He would then do the same thing again with the goat, um, a, a, a goat. He would sacrifice a goat, and that would symbolize the cleansing of the sanctuary from all of the people's sins of the nation. And after that, the priest would then, we're now in verse 20, if you're following along in Leviticus 16, um, he would then go through and he would put his hands on a live goat, he would confess all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, and then he would take that goat and he would, he would expel it into the wilderness. It was as if this goat was like a national garbage truck to remove the sins of the people of Israel far from the presence of the Lord, far from remove it. 
This was a very solemn day in the nation. They were commanded to take the entire day off. They were to do no work. And verse 30 tells the Israelites that it was a day that they would be cleansed before the Lord of all their sins. Now, much could be said of this annual ritual, but what we have to recognize is that it simply serves as a way to purify sin through a substitutionary sacrifice that was needed to address this sin problem. But I want to ask the question, why do all this? Why do we need the ritual? Why, did this, why was this necessary for the nation? Well, we have to understand that mankind needs more than just forgiveness of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, that's how the forgiveness of sin is how the sacrifices are described in Leviticus 3. It always says, and his sins will be forgiven. Now, when our sin is forgiven, it's showing us, that the, it's showing us the mercy of God. It's showing us that God is no longer going to punish us personally for our sin. But there still needs to be a, a solution to appease the wrath of God's justice. Justice still needs to be addressed with sin. For sin to be truly dealt with, that justice must be brought about. Now, let me try to illustrate this with an example. Um, I can forgive someone for betraying me, um, but the reality is, is I'm going to still remember that the betrayal happened, and I'm going to be a little bit cautious around that person going forward. And in order for that betrayal to no longer impact my relationship with that other person, I need the ability to forget that the betrayal ever happened. I need to cleanse my mind of the event entirely. I need to be able to rest in some reality that all of the wrath and all of the justice needed to deal with the wrong that was dealt to me is somehow going to be paid for. That's the only way I'm going to be able to interact with that individual is if nothing ever happened to begin with. I want you to take a look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10. If you have a moment, turn there in your Bible. Um, 1006 if you need it. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10. Looking at verse 1, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience, consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What is the author of Hebrews telling us here? Well, this Day of Atonement ritual was a constant reminder to Israel of their sin, <clears throat> this sin that marred their relationship with God. Their conscience ultimately was never cleansed, it's saying here in Hebrews. And so for our conscience to be cleansed, in order for us to be able to set this sin thing behind us and to be able to have an ongoing relationship with the Lord, we need something that is better than the blood of bulls and goats to deal with the sin problem. And that is, of course, where Christ comes into play. Now, we need this same type of restoration in our relationship with God. We need to be righteous before God to be in his presence as well. For otherwise, we would simply be consumed by his holiness, just as Nadab and Abihu were. Now, for the Israelites, this was being done by a sacrifice. 
but it never had the ability to do so permanently, and it always reminded the Israelites of their sin. In verse 11 of Hebrews 10, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's what we see happening here. We need a new and more perfect covenant that is going, and that is what Christ did for us on the cross when he died for our sins. And we look more further into Hebrews here, and um, he can, he, and back in verse um, 7, I'll, I'll start in verse 5, where it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is Jesus that he's quoting, that he has come to do the will of God. And then in verse 10, he says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In verse 16, or 15, it speaks of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to us. <coughs> Sorry. Forgot about the mic, I apologize. He then goes on, he says, he's quoting Jeremiah 31 here. Um, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering. There is no longer any offering for sin. See, what we're seeing here is that because of Christ's sacrifice, there is now no need for offerings for sin. Christ fulfills this whole sacrificial system. Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world once and for all, Christ has atoned for our sins forever, permanently, never to be done. Our conscience is cleaned. Amen? Amen. See, back to the illustration that I was using about the friend that betrayed me and not being able to, not being able to forget that the betrayal happened. It's this reality that God's justice has been appeased by the wrath of God and has been paid for by the blood of Christ that enables me to forget that a betrayal happened and to restore my relationship with him. It is that reality of the gospel that enables us to move forward because Christ has dealt with sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness and cleansing, just like we see in the book of Leviticus. So we can see the magnificence of this work of Christ more clearly because we took a little bit of time to understand the foundation that Leviticus was laying down. Christ atones for us by his blood sacrifice. He frees us from our sins once for all. Not just forgiveness, but he cleanses our conscience in a way that we are able to serve the living God. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 9 now, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we need to continue. Look back again in Leviticus. 
Because the question we want to ask now is why is God so concerned about us being cleansed? Why is he so concerned about our conscience being purified so that we can serve the living God? And the answer we find in Leviticus 19. We quoted these verses, or we recited these verses. Let me read them very quickly. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. See, God is interested in your holiness. And if for some reason, I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. If for some reason you don't think that that applies to you because I was just reading out of the Old Testament, I want to remind you that Peter says the same thing and quotes this passage when he writes his book in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The biblical story is telling us that God created mankind to have a relationship with him. That's why he created us. And he has been marching history forward in order to restore what was broken in the fall when mankind fell into sin. We became incapable of being holy and dwelling in the presence of God when we sinned. We were corrupted completely by this sin. Can you imagine how grieved God must have been when he had to destroy all mankind in the worldwide flood? Why? Because he wanted to have a relationship with them. Can you imagine how grieved, um, sorry, it was his desire to have that relationship that he decides to make a covenant with Noah, and he promises not to destroy the earth again by water on account of man's wickedness. Can you imagine how grieved he was when he had to say that he was going to make this covenant because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth? See, if God had not made the Noahic covenant, he would have had to have continually destroyed mankind because mankind is so sinful. That's what we're seeing here. He wants to have a relationship with them. He wants to dwell with them. He wants the man, mankind to glorify him. He wants mankind to experience the joy of serving him. Now, to further see God's heart to dwell with his people, let's take a look at what happens all the way at the end of human history when the new heaven and the new earth has been created. And then God says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He didn't just create us as a bunch of animals. He created us with a soul, and he created us so that he could dwell with us and so that we could glorify him. And holiness is the key to that dwelling. Holiness is the key to that dwelling. We must be holy is what Leviticus 19 is showing us. It's not good enough for us to just be sinless. We must be holy. We need to be righteous as God is righteous. We have to reflect in our lives what God is like in his character, morality, and love in order to dwell with God. How can this happen? How can we possibly be holy like that? How can we possibly be holy with all of our faults and weaknesses? Is God somehow expecting us to just um, figure out how to please him through the rugged individualism of American spirit? Is that what he's asking? 
Are we supposed to just figure this out on our own? Are we supposed to achieve holiness by partnering up with the rest of humanity in some type of utopian society? Anyone that's tried such a thing understands how unbelievably foolish that is. We must understand that this command for us to be holy as God is holy is not a quid pro quo. It's not some cosmic, I scratched your back, now you scratch my back kind of agreement. That's not what's being done here. God is not saying to his people, you be holy because I did all this work to redeem you and make you my people. We're not expected to repay God for his steadfast love and kindness to us. No, that's not it at all. What God is saying to his people in Leviticus is that they were enabled to do this because he redeemed them and made them his people. Now, if um, slides, if we could have verses 3 and 4, please. I had you recite verses 3 and 4 because I wanted you to see something very specific that is a pattern throughout Leviticus 19. And so notice there, there's a command. You shall revere his father, and every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths, I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And we see that pattern, thank you for that. So um, we see that pattern um, repeated throughout all of Leviticus 19. And it's that phrase, for I am the Lord your God, that begins to help us see that we are enabled to be holy as God is holy, by our holy God, he is the one that is enabling this holiness to occur. Now, commentator Roy Gaines states this well when he says, when God bestows on us the gifts of repentance, justification, and forgiveness, he does not then expect us to pull ourselves up to obedience by our own bootstraps. By freely giving us the love that empowers obedience, he provides us with obedience as a gift of grace received through faith. See, what Roy is saying here is that we're sanctified in our relationship with God. The author of Hebrews said that very same thing. God, in our relationship with God, it is him that is redeeming us, and then it is him that gives us the ability to obey him. That's amazing. That's amazing. See, as Leviticus 19 develops, we actually see two key statements that are repeated throughout Scripture. Now, starting in Leviticus 19, verse 9, we start to see that God's people are going to give a series, they're given a series of commands about how they should love their neighbor. Things like, hey, when you go harvest your field, keep the corners um, unharvested so that way there's food for those that are poor. And it ends all in verse 18 with a very well-known phrase, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then again in verse 37, after a list of commands that are related to his people um, displaying a character of his holiness, they are commanded, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. As you read through the Pentateuch, you, you see that command given to the Israelites many times. It's repeated later in Deuteronomy when Moses is saying to the next generation of Israelites that are about to enter the promised land, he says a similar thing, but he also says this very well-known verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, what's the common thread here? Love. 
love. See, what God's holiness demands of us is love. Love of one's neighbor as themselves and love for God with all their heart, soul, and might. Holiness is ultimately being defined as an act of love for one another and an act of love for God. Now, this makes a lot of sense when you think about what it takes to keep the commandments that you see laid out throughout Scripture. Let me walk you through this a bit. How can you, with a cheerful heart, every time you get paid, give a tithe of the first fruits of what the Lord has provided to you? When the HMS Aaron H.C. Long is breaking down and it needs a $10,000 paint job, when, 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 when the driveway needs to be repaired and it needs thousands of dollars to repair that, when you're driving a jalopy, you can't take a vacation because all of your money just goes to just trying to stay up, keep your head above water. You can't give your kids the things that you want. How are you in that moment going to give a tithe of the first fruits of what the Lord has provided to you? Because you love him. Because you love him. How are you every single day of the week, out of seven days, one of those days you're going to rest and you're going to spend the day reflecting upon the character, nature, holiness, goodness, graciousness, loving kindness, steadfast kindness, love of God, worshiping him and him alone your entire life. How are you going to be able to do something like that? Well, because you love him. Because you love him. That's the motive. How in the world are you going to be able to spend a lot of time reading the Bible, building a habit of prayer so that you can have a deep relationship with God? Because you love him with all your heart, soul, and might. How can you give up an entire evening after a hard day at work and you've got all these other things to do to help a struggling friend, to give them the time that they need to grieve with them? Because you love them. Because you love them. How can you spend all of your wealth in service to others and realize that I'm going to have to work until I am 65 or 70 years of age because I'm going to give my wealth to others? How are you going to do that? Because you love them. How can you forgive somebody who has brutally stabbed you in the back, offended you repeat repeatedly, displays toxic behaviors every single time, that you're around them. How can you forgive that person over and over? Because you love them. Do you need a more lighthearted example? How are you going to give up the red and the pink starburst so that you don't make your friend eat just the yellow and the orange ones? It is only love that is going to make you do that. Bit of a recent illustration from my home. Um, here's my challenge to you. Try to faithfully obey these commands of scriptures. Try to faithfully obey them without love. And let me know how far you go. Let me know how far you get. Because see, you're not going to get anywhere. It's impossible. You're going to quickly run up against these demands and you're going to see how corrupt your heart really is. How messed up you really are. In fact, we will find that this act of love for God and others is ultimately impossible in our strength. We find ourselves needing another divine intervention. Again, we need a supernatural power that is going to consistently, faithfully enable us to give of ourselves so that we can be obedient to all these commands that we see in Scripture. 
Now, here's a key point of application that I really want you guys to take home. In order for you to be holy, as God is holy, we need to love God and we need to love each other more. That's what creates the holiness. That's how the holiness is demonstrated. Are you struggling with being obedient to God? Well, here's what I want you to do. You don't need more discipline. You don't need to figure out how you just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps so that you can just obey God. What you need is to love him more. A prayer of strength to resist the devil is good. Pray that. But also pray that God would cause you to love him more so that all these things that your heart is drawn away to just fade in comparison to that which you can have in your relationship with God. A prayer of a prayer asking God to help someone to see how they're hurting you is okay. But also pray that God would cause you to love them more and that they would see the love of Christ displayed in your response and in your reaction to them. Let me close with this thought. I've often thought that I am so broken that the only hope that I have to be holy as God is holy is for someone that would be there to walk with me every moment of my day, to prompt me, to nudge me every time I start to veer off course. I mean, if only I had someone who would dwell with me continually so that I would have the power to be obedient to God and so that I could be holy as he is holy. I forgive my tongue in cheek because we have that. And those of you that know the word know what I'm referring to. We have the Spirit of God who lives in us, who dwells in us. We are living in the presence of a holy God. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're living in the presence of a holy God. The Spirit of God is within you, living alongside of you, dwelling with you. Now, Paul tells us this in Romans after recounting that we could endure suffering, having endurance, and it was because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit was promised to the Israelites in Jeremiah 31, and again it was quoted by the author of Hebrews in chapter 10. We have the divine supernatural power of God to change our heart and cause us to behave in holiness as God has commanded like that's how sanctification works. He does all the work. Holiness matters, ladies and gentlemen. Holiness matters. We should pursue it with all our heart, soul, and might. God does not save us from our sins so that we can just go off and live a life that is just forgiven. What God saves us from our sins for. Sorry, as Paul says in Romans 6, let me say these first. As Paul, as Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He also says to the Galatians, For you were called the freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. God saved us from our sins so that we could, for the first time, live the life that he calls us to live, a life of holiness that is expressed through our obedience to God, that is expressed through seeing our love for him and others. God the Son died on a cross to pay the needed blood sacrifice to atone for our sins. 
God the Father makes us alive in Christ and he accepts the perfect sacrifice of his son. And God the Spirit sanctifies us and empowers us to obey our God. Thomas Boston said, Sanctification is the work of God, for it needs no less power than was necessary for creating the world or raising the dead. It is the work of the whole trinity to sanctify a soul, as little as many think of being holy. All the work to be holy as God is holy, as he has called you to do, all that work has been done and is being done by God. I pray that you would rest in this glorious truth. Let's pray. Father, I come to you again and I ask that it is your spirit that would overcome any flaws in my speech, any flaws in my communication of these glorious truths. I pray that you would help your people to see that you have saved them, you have redeemed them, and you have provided for them all that they need to live a life of holiness. And I pray that you would increase their understanding of these truths, that they would be able to know them in maturity, that they would understand the height, the depth, and the, and the width of everything that we've talked about. I pray that their love would increase for you. I pray that they would be able to be obedient to these commands you have given to us because they love you, not for any legalistic, self-righteous motive. I pray that they would be able to find the blessing of the ability to, in endurance and persistence, love their neighbor as themselves. And I pray that in these things that your people would be sanctified, that your people would glorify our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.